You are listening to Root Simple. This week, Kelly and I talked to David King about seed saving and seed libraries. Reading from the bio on his blog, Born a son of the Kansas prairie, David grew up growing fresh fruits and vegetables for market. His understanding of plants and the food we get from them is informed through his intimate relationship with these plants and his connection to the land. He has written an introduction, general botany text, an organic gardening primer, and has published poetry, short stories, and essays. He plays guitar and bass and sings in a band, in addition to teaching organic gardening and botany at the Learning Garden, located on the grounds of Venice High School and in local colleges. In the rest of his time, he is the garden master for the Learning Garden. And now, our conversation with David King. We're here with David King, founding chair of the Seed Library Los Angeles. Kelly's with me as well, and as well as a uh, terrier named Tree. A Scottish terrier named Tree, yes. We were going to ask him if he was a tree, what kind of tree would he be? Do you have an answer to that, David? I'm sure he'd be a Scotty tree, whatever kind of tree that would be. I'm not sure. I think that's the perfect answer. Uh, well, so I guess the first obvious question is, what is the Seed Library Los Angeles? The Seed Library of Los Angeles is a seed library for the city of Los Angeles. Right now we have two branches, one's in the valley and one here in Venice. But the idea is that we will be a seed library for the entire community and have branches all over this all over the city. In a seed library, it's like you it's like a regular library where you check out a book and when you're done reading the book you bring it back. In a seed library you check out seeds, you grow the seeds, and from those seeds you save some seeds to bring back. Was there a moment in the past? I mean, this is 2010 you'd founded this. Was there this moment where this, this came to you as a, in a vision, like, you know, the Virgin Mary appearing or something like that? What was, what was the impetus to, to begin the Seed Library? Boy, I could really, really play with that Virgin Mary uh, <laughs> image. But in truth, in 2009, this woman I was dating said, uh, you know, you should start a Seed Library. That would go really good with your programs out there at the Learning Garden. And I said, great, what's that? And I looked it up, and you know what? That's a lot of work. And I really didn't, I'm allergic to work. So I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. And in 2010, I think it was when the Obama administration finally approved alfalfa. No, it was shard, uh, sugar beets, sugar beets. I went ballistic. That's another wind-pollinated plant. And, And we know what's happening to our corn already in losing the diversity because of genetic drift, genetic, uh, the pollen drift, not genetic drift, but pollen drift. And, uh, and, and that just made me ballistic. I thought, I think on one hand, we thought that Obama was going to be on our side and he wasn't. And so it scared us and made us angry. So I called a meeting for December 4th and asked anybody who was interested in forming a sea library to come out. And I was shocked. It was about 45 people showed up. I mean, it was a rainy, cold, wet day, and we were outside, so it quickly went down to about 20. But some of those people are still involved today, and I'm really happy with that. So it was, a, it was, it was in a way, it was a political act. Uh, you were concerned about genetically modified seeds, uh, correct? So 
how has that and actually i know you were involved in the fight against genetically modified uh, or or declaring la a, a gm free zone which was a bit of a uh, difficult situation <laughs> david's uh, tearing up right now uh, do you want, so how how has this how how has it progressed now uh, since since the founding has have, has it fulfilled your sort of um ideas politically with the with saving seed we're still working on it um i think one of the things that that led me to found the seed library is the fact that it was not a political move because i really don't really care that much for politics uh and then i got into this the uh making la a gmo free zone um kind of in a conversation with um uh, vandana shiva and so I did all that, but to be honest with you, I would really not – I would just soon stay the hell out of politics and do what I can do. I'm a gardener. I can save seeds. And so practically speaking, how does a seed library work? With a lot of, a lot of help. <laughs> you know, it, it works really well because the community begins to save seeds. You know, if, if, you want to, if you want to save seeds, there are only so many seeds you can save on your property with the the limitations of growing times and space whereas if we have a community and you grow out radishes and i grow out beets right then then neither one of us has an has a onerous load to bear as far as saving some seeds so if you save the radishes and i save the beets and somebody else saves the Carrots. I'm using only root crops here because that's what we're planting now, and 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 those are longest. By the way, it's what is it? Twenty four days to get a radish, you know, and almost two years to get a radish seed. So you know, those are those are really onerous plants to as far as uh, load on the space goes. So, but if you if everybody takes on one, and this is what I would really really love to see, that every family take on one plant one variety of one plant and say this one will survive because I'll ensure it then we'd have it made in the shade now before we began you said that that this library is is unlike uh, a lot of other seed libraries how is the LA seed library different than others our model is strictly that we give you the seed you know directly you, if you're going to check out seed from the Seed Library of Los Angeles, you're going to come to us, and you're going to place your order with us. By the way, we do have a membership fee. It's $10 for a lifetime, so it's not really heavy lifting. But I wanted everybody to have some skin in the game, and I also wanted uh, to have you have to sign on the Safe Seed Pledge. Those are the two, to me, the most important things. And from there on out, it is pretty much an honor system. The L.A. library is really different from the other libraries in that uh, you have to come to us to check out seeds. The other libraries are usually distributing their seeds through uh, regular libraries, like Richmond Groves is in the Richmond uh, Public Library. Here, you've got to come to us to get the seeds, and then you need to bring the seeds back to us. And when you don't bring the seeds back to us, we can say, hi. We would like to have some seeds back. Now, we're not going to do that for everything because we know that if you check out five different varieties of seeds, you cannot save five different varieties of seeds. But if you save one of them and you save a lot of that one, that makes up for not saving the other four. In our system, when you bring it back, you have to tell us how you saved it. 
you have to tell us your expertise as a gardener. Did you know how to save it? And, and, and then did you, what practices did you do to ensure that it is the variety that you say it is? I think seed libraries are going to fail at some time in the future if people check out seeds for, oh, Kentucky Wonder Beans, and they end up with Purple Stripe. I mean, that's not going to work. So we have to be able to say, this is Kentucky Wonder Bean, and we have to say it with certainty so that when you get it, you, can, you, you know you've got Kentucky Wonder. That, to me, is absolutely essential. Maybe this would be a good time to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of seed saving because people get real excited about saving seeds, the idea of it, beginning gardeners. And I see sometimes uh, community groups saying, you know, save your seeds, bring them in. You know, but that if you're not saving seeds, as you were just talking about, with knowledge of how to do it, then you're not going to get uh, a true what, what, what is the correct term, a true variety um, when you grow it out. So maybe David can share some just some things that people should be aware of if they're thinking about saving seeds, things they should look into and know about. There's many different categories of seed saving, and, and, and the thing of it is that the easy seeds, the ones that are self-pollinating, those are practically fail-proof. And it's certainly, which are those? And that would include lettuce and tomatoes beans and peas. Those are practically practically uh, foolproof. What's really interesting, getting into this, this is a little esoteric, but I really love it, mm-hmm. so let me say it. In, when we get into this, they, the literature says beans never cross, but we found out beans cross about 10% of the time. And, the, and figuring it out, if you look at how the, the statistics were compiled from these very antiseptic uh, pesticide sprayed and herbicide sprayed uh, plots that are our farm experiment stations. And then you take that, you put it out of the country, bring it into the city with no pesticides and lots of insects, and you get a hungry insect going, screw you, I'm pollinating, you know. Uh, so we get a lot higher cross that way. And I don't mind if you have a few crosses in the bean patch, you know, because you see them. It's wonderful because um, – can I use the word phenotype or am I banned from doing <laughs> – Please do. All right, the phenotype, what it looks like, that the what it looks like will be the indicator of what it is. I mean, I, it's so wonderful when you're dealing with vegetables, the phenotype is the type. And if it doesn't have the phenotype, it's not the type. And so therefore, if you if you have a row of beans and they're all Kentucky Wonders and then you got this weirdo down there which has got, you know, getting up 4 inches higher than everything else, then that's probably not a good one to save Kentucky Wonder beans from. You know, you have to eat it. That's unfortunately. Now, what do you do with the difficult to save seeds, like the squashes and things like that, that outcross quite quite readily? Now, do you do you instruct people to isolate? How do you how do you deal with the really difficult ones? And that's very interesting because we took that on for the first time this year in in July, middle of July. July we had a uh, squash poly party, and we met here at six forty five a.m. And we had a pollination party, and we pollinated. This happened to be the day that it poured in July. <laughs> it was so funny because we went out into the garden, and, and um, you know, <laughs> that has challenges. I have never tried to set that kind of a thing up before. And so we had about 80 plants out here of one variety, just trying to get an – and what was really sad is on the day of the poly party, it was just like a typical bar scene. We had all these guys and no girls. You know, it's like, 
we're running, you know, and and so finally we end up with uh, a couple of uh, a couple of girls, and we end, we had four flowers we could pollinate, you know. But and so that means that everybody didn't get a chance to pollinate, but everybody got to see it up close and personal. <laughs> and we had a few, and we had a fub up, uh, you know, where where the the flower, the female flower, fell off, and you know, guess what? That's no good. So rough sex. What can I tell you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, yeah, go ahead, Kelly. Well, I didn't know that there were male and female squash flowers, or I knew and I, and I forgot, because I've never saved squash seeds before because I've just sort of heard it's very difficult and they have to be isolated and da-da-da. Well, the, the actual saving, but don't you need to keep your – you can only grow one kind of squash at a time. Like, What are the rules with the squash? It's not difficult. What it is, it requires thinking. An observation. But then again, we're gardeners, and so we should be used to that by now, you know, because when you're solving problems in the garden, it is so much better for you to consult what's happening around and what has just happened before that than it is to go read a book. When my book comes out, and there's nobody in town that's going to want to sell my book because, because in the beginning it says you don't need to buy so much stuff, you know, and, and since you're going to take this book to somebody and they're going to go, I'm not selling your book. It tells them not to buy anything. So what the, the problem it's not a big deal. You, let's say, in this case, we grew out, oh, heck, I can't think of the name of the one we grew out, but we grew out a zucchini. We had one variety of zucchini that we grew out. So we have it out there. We are only going to save seeds on the ones we hand-pollinate. The rest of it we can eat. We don't have to save that many seeds. We have to save seeds off of several plants. That is ideal. This is the case. But we don't have to save every single one. So we go out there the night before we are going to pollinate, and we learn to look at flowers and to see when they're going to open. The male flower is aloft from the main stem on its own stem, which is called the peduncle, by the way. <laughs> and I could run around all day long and say peduncle. It's just such a fun word to say. The female flower, though, is right up next to the main stalk with what looks to be like a baby fruit. At this time, because it's not pollinated, it is merely an embryo. So then we tape the, the flowers shut, or in our case, we actually found using those clothespins with the spring in them is much easier. So we close the flower with a, with a clothespin, and, then, and we close males with the clothespins too, so we know that we preserved their pollen, and then come out in the morning, take the male, we can rip the flower off, and put the flower in the female and get the pollen in there and then reclose it so that the bee doesn't come along and undo our handiwork. And then that, by the way, and the, the most important thing, people will put a flag on the, on the um, flower, but the flower is going to fall off. Then which one is it? So you have to put a flag on the flower. We also used irrigation flags next to them. And we took photographs with a landmark in the photograph so that we could if we really had to we could go back and consult the photograph i will tell you that when it got around to actually picking the squashes themselves there was one plant i didn't pick from because i was confused which was being represented because there were actually two squashes going out almost the same direction so it was you know but that's just the first time out of the shoot doing squashes and the same thing holds true for cucumbers melons and uh, and all sorts, all that, the crawly family, you know, 
That's the Crawley family, the technical term, sorry. Now, why do you want to save save seeds from several different, not varieties, but several different individuals of one variety instead of just one plant? Like why one squash, but three squash plants? Right. Well, because at the, uh, we're trying to make sure we get all of the genetic information from one generation to the next. Uh, each plant is going to have a slightly different genetic makeup, and we want to make sure we get all those genes passing forward. Um, if we save from too few specimens, we'll have a bottleneck of genetic information going, going around. And we want to avoid that to the degree we can. Ideally, what would happen is that I would be saving this squash here, and you would be saving that squash there. And I'd save from three plants, you save from three plants, and maybe another person save from three plants, and then that's a total of nine plants. I'm feeling much better about that than I am about my three. Now, what are the qualities that you're selecting for? Because, of course, you're, when you're saving seed, you're essentially a plant breeder. What are, you, what are you looking for in those successful plants? You know, and I love that fact that we are actually breeding plants. When you begin to save seeds, you are actually breeding plants, and that's, I love that. Uh, when we look for them, uh, it depends. In the situation of this, we had picked a squash that we felt was very prolific in our area. It was somewhat resistant to... Um, the powdery mildew, which we get, I don't know about y'all, but we get it something fierce. And, and it was, it was a well-flavored squash. Um, and that's a hard muster for me because I'm just not a huge zucchini, zucchini, whoopee. You know, um, I remember I'm from the area, uh, era when you didn't actually lock your cars except on Sunday morning at, uh, during squash season. Because the ethic, you know, it's just after the dust bowl. The ethic is you eat everything. You eat everything. And somebody would come along and stick one of these big honking zucchinis in your back seat. You know, it's just awful. I, you know, I go home and I just want to cry because I knew we were going to eat zucchini for the rest of the month. Yeah, worse, someone would put a, a zucchini bread in your back. Uh... Oh, that'd be, that'd be fine. I could live with a zucchini bread if they'd done the work. But no, they leave us the work, you know. So... Uh, we also, one of the things that I'm sure you're probably thinking about is uh, drought tolerance because, you know, for me, and I think for Kelly too, right, Kelly? Uh, well, one of the frustrating things about this uh, area is that when you buy seeds at the store, they're grown, they're irrigated, they're grown somewhere in the Midwest, totally different climate. Are you, are you looking to develop, you know, this phenomenal Los Angeles tomatoes and zucchinis and whatever else? I, you know, I didn't say that because it almost goes without saying. Uh, our gardens here at the Learning Garden are all hand-watered. There's no irrigation here. And as a consequence, um, it's hard to get them watered because you really don't want to water in the middle of the day. So you're watering early when you get here and just before you leave. And sometimes, many times during the summertime, you're staying late simply because you can water now. You know, and, and the pressure here is not very good. So you can't have any more than two hose, hoses really going at one time. So that is almost an inbred. It's, if, it, if it lives here, it's, it's somewhat drought tolerant. What are, what other things are you looking for? You mentioned um, we just talked about drought tolerance. What about flavor? Because there's a both you and I go to the Heirloom Expo, and I don't know if you ever saw the tomato breeder that comes. His name is Hempel. I think his last name is Hempel. Anyway, he talks about how there's actually no such thing as an heirloom vegetable because genetically they'll drift over time as you do the things we just talked about, selecting for things. Do you also think about flavor when you're making those those choices? 
Yeah, I think so. I very much flavor. Uh, although with the zucchini project, I wasn't. I don't really think zucchinis taste, you know. But um, yeah, first of all, you want to start off with a with a vegetable that's got a superior flavor. And yeah, there is drift, but you can certainly say when you've seen uh, uh, what is it, the wapsicons peach, right? That's a that's a very distinct variety, and maybe it has drifted, but it is still what it is, you know. And and, and yeah, we're going to call him an heirloom, but I do I I think he is correct in the essence that things are changing always. You know, it's very few people end up looking like Uncle Bob and. You know, if they do look like Uncle Bob, they aren't exact copies of Uncle Bob. And, I mean, you know, unless you're the English kings. Do you have any interest in, in creating hybrids with tomatoes or anything else like that? Not necessarily hybrids. I do have, uh, I mean, hybrids, yes. Because, but the thing we would do, of course, is make them stable hybrids. Um, and one of the projects that's just getting underway right now is going to be uh, uh, broccoli. And what I, because broccoli is really difficult to save. Because it is a bee-pollinated flower, and the bees absolutely adore the flowers. You know, you'd have to almost have a standing army around each broccoli plant. <laughs> and then it wouldn't get pollinated. So what I'm looking for is I'm going to grow out three of my favorite varieties of, of broccoli. Uh, Nutribud, Chico, and the third one escapes me at this moment. But I'm going to allow them to cross. Completely. And then I'm going to sow that seed and from that seed pick the best specimens and then let them cross and over and over and over again and can continue doing that for about five, six years and end up with a broccoli that will not have to be protected from other broccolis. It'll be a, the king broccoli then, right? Yeah, I think we're going to probably call it something more more generally appealing. Like uh, it's probably it, what I'm shooting for is what they call a land race which has got the dominant uh, characteristics, dominant genetics. And uh, hopefully, and that's going to solve that problem. I haven't solved, there's a lot of problems. You know, when you're dealing with, when you first, when I first started thinking about growing from seed, it was all very simple. And the more I've grown out from seed, the more, uh, the more layers and nuances I'm getting with it. Um, And it's, honestly, if I'd known that I'd have to know all this stuff, I probably wouldn't have done it because I am fairly lazy. Make the dog memorize it, but um, what I, uh, I, you know, now we're looking at at broccoli. That's a problem solved. Now, what are we going to do about corn? Corn is a huge problem. Corn, you have to have a minimum of two hundred plants to preserve the genetics. Otherwise, you end up with inbred. Um, what do they call it? Inbred, uh, inbred English kingism. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you call it, but it doesn't work. And and so we have to have that. And yet, and so people are offering. You know, well, I've got land down in Mexico, and I've got. Oh, I don't want it from Mexico. I want it from L.A. I need to have a, I need to have 200 plants here in, in LA, and I have to have it hand pollinated. See, the thing of it is, it isn't that difficult to control pollination when you get down to it uh, with most plants. It is in broccoli. It isn't in cabbage because in cabbage, well, yes, it is in cabbage because cabbage can cross with broccoli. I mean, this gets to be really difficult, and and we have small tolerances in the city. You know, the good news is that in Los Angeles, you have something in bloom. Uh, 12 months out of the year and usually your bees aren't straying that far from the hive they can go out to five miles away but they don't usually have to in in la uh so and that's playing a little with house money i think but but still i think it's possible but broccoli certainly is not possible because broccoli will tend to flower um and that's and that's makes it difficult the whole 
cabbage family. Curses on them. Curses on the cabbage. <laughs> Have you done a caging of, of vegetables? Yeah, I've got, and if, in fact, caging isn't, isn't as difficult. Uh, I've got four cages, four wooden cages, and we cover them. This is my own invention. I'm kind of proud of it, so if mind if I wax forth. Uh, we actually just staple a row cover to it, mm. right? And, and so if we're doing peppers, for example, this is, this is kind of cool. We can do four Mar Marconi peppers and then four jalapenos. Right, those are two of my favorites. So we have the cages, and because uh, just for 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 uh, consistency's sake, at seven o'clock or at sundown on Sunday, we take the cages and we put them on one variety of plants, the four Marconis, and they stay on the Marconis for that week, and then and off. Of the jalapenos. The next week at sundown on Sunday, we take the cages off of the Marconis and put them on to the um, jalapenos. And we do that back and forth until we have the number pollinated that we want pollinated. And that is probably a pretty good indication that we have pure Marconis and pure um, whatever they are. <laughs> right. Jalapenos. Jalapenos, yeah. We, you meant, we, we mentioned this before, but I, I think just to back up for a second, for listeners who might want to, who are not part of a seed bank, maybe just want to do an easy seed-saving project, is there uh, some vegetables you would recommend for that, for a small yard? Sure. And I'd just like to correct that we are a seed library. I'm sorry, I said seed bank. That implies you have a bunker in Sweden, but you don't have a bunker in Sweden or in uh, uh, Silver Lake or something, right? No, sorry about that. Seed library. Yeah, no bunkers and, and no funding. <laughs> That's the main thing. You know, those, those banks have a lot of money behind them, uh, whereas we're, we're shoestring and community involved. But banks are important. It's just we, that's not what we are. And so you have the easies of lettuce, which is super easy. You just, as soon as the, it bolts, you'll begin to see the flowers. And then after the flowers, you'll begin to see the seeds form. As long as the seeds are shiny and kind of translucent, they're not mature yet. You wait until they turn the color. It's going to be white. It's going to be black. Black-seeded Simpson, famous for being a black-seeded. And then saving those seeds is relatively easy, straightforward. The same is true with beans. You just simply, simp simply leave them in the ground until they're, you know, they're dry, the, the pods are dry, and then shell them out. I will tell you that one of my best seed-saving experiments was when I got the Italian bean. What's the Italian soup bean? The um, cannellini. Yeah. Cannellini. Cannelloni is a pasta. Oh, that's right. Cannellini. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so the cannellini beans. And I went over to the, the um, farm, not the farmer's market, but to the uh, co-op, and I bought a pound of beans. It doesn't say at the co-op, if these are bush beans or if they're climbing beans, and I thought they were bush and they turned out to be climbing. So it was a huge disaster in that sense. These beans were all climbed into each other. I got five pounds out of that. No, I'm sorry. I got 15 pounds. I got two seven-and-a-half-pound bucket fulls, and I'm done. I have dried beans. I'm done. No, you're not done. When I went to use them about three months later, each bean had been drilled into right and the entire the entire harvest was wasted 
and which made me absolutely furious. So when you get your beans in, you need to put them in the freezer for a few days. When they're good and dry, put them in the freezer for three days. That kills any larva, and then you've just got more protein. Uh, any other storage tips for, for saving uh, seeds? Well, let's get through the easy seeds first. Oh, yeah, the easy seeds. Sorry, sorry. Let's go back to that. Yeah, go back to that. Uh, we have, and tomatoes are very easy. Tomatoes self-pollinate before the flower is even opened, except with a few tomatoes like the, what is the variety that is not very common? It's not a very common variety, so we don't have to worry. Oh, I know. The potato-leafed. The potato-leafed ones can actually have the stamen and the pistils extend beyond the flower, and those, are, those can be a problem. But nobody grows them. So there you go. And also peas, which are very much like beans. You know, peas are self-pollinating. And again, you just let it dry on the vine and make sure you freeze it before you store it. So those are the ones that everybody should start with. And they're very, especially lettuce is so easy, so easy to start with. Cool. Kelly, any other practical questions before we get on to the institutional stuff? Um, I actually wanted to see how he processes the tomato seeds. Sure. Once he oh, yeah. Good question. Yeah, tomatoes are the one, the one ugly duckling uh, in, in processing. Um, I like to take the tomato, assuming that the uh, stem end is the north pole and the blossom end is the south pole. I cut them in half across the equator and squeeze them out. And in fact, once we pause the recorder, I can jump up and show you these glass jars over here we have. And we squeeze the content into the jars. We might add, for some paste tomatoes, we might add a little bit of moisture. But for the most part, it is simply the moisture in the tomato. We cap them off. These caps that we have are the canning caps, but we've replaced the lid with screen. Mm -hmm. And we set them someplace where we won't smell them. We leave them there. Once the scum has started to form, they are done, right? And we will take them and dump the contents into a strainer and blast it with water until the scum is gone, the seeds are clean. I would then knock them out, and I usually use a coffee filter, knock them out onto a coffee filter until they're fairly dry, and then I can put them back in the screen-covered jar and leave them in there until they're thoroughly dry, just shaking them like every day. And that's the, that's the sum total of that. Mind you, they will germinate even if you don't do that. What will happen, though, is they will not germinate uniformly. And because when we plant a six-pack of seeds, we expect to see the six-pack have six seeds, six plants in it shortly, Right. What will happen is that, that there will be different germination times for the for, because that's the intent of the plant to be able to germinate their seeds over a longer time. So what you mean is if you leave the sticky scum on the seeds, that's protecting the seeds until that wears off naturally and then they germinate. Um, so you're just removing that barrier. Right. Precisely so, because we do like uniform germination. Right, but they will germinate. My grandfather, I think, simply spread his tomato seeds out on newsprint. Uh, as a young adult, I was kind of shocked to find out that tomato seeds came without newsprint attached. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's. But you know, then again, he was he was a patient man. I mean, he put up with me as a kid, so he was a patient man. Kelly, any more practical questions? Or, well, I guess we need to talk. Dude, I did mention how you say how you store seeds. So, you have any advice for people on storing seeds? Sure. Storing seeds is, is very easy. The, the, the cooler, the darker, and the drier you can do it is, is the way to go. We here are storing most of our seeds in a refrigerator 
with lots of desiccant packages. Uh, that's how the library stores their seeds. My seeds, my personal seeds, are just stored in glass jars on the shelf. Uh, and they are subjected so, to some heat. But you know what? That is, most seeds, are. it's not that critical. Onions, carrots, I think, the, and parsnips. I think those three, the library is just going to buy in annually. I don't see how we can save them. So Okay, so when people bring their seeds in, you mentioned that you, um, you do have some questions for them at that time to make sure that they've uh, collected the seeds. And, and now I'm realizing probably storing the seeds correctly until they come to you. So what, what kind of questions do you ask them? And, and what happens? Do you, do you have to turn people away? And what happens then? Those are good questions. We have a form that they fill out when they return them. And some of the questions on there uh, at the beginning is, you know, where did the seed come from? Was it a seed library seed or did, it, did you purchase this seed? And if, you so, if so, whom did you purchase it from or who gave it to you? What were their quality assurances? How do they know? Uh, you are asked to tick off uh, you are an expert gardener, you have a clue, or um, I can't remember the third one, but it's funny. It's like, you know, I know nothing, right? <laughs> I, am, I am as dumb as the moon. And then there's a series of questions about how well did it grow? How well did it produce? Did it taste good, right? And what other qualities? And, it, and the answers on that can be written in the spaces next to it, or you can just use a tick mark of, uh, of a, on across a continuum, the way it's organized. And then if we ask for isolation practices, uh, if applicable. You know, if you've got beans or if you've got tomatoes, we're not really concerned. But if you are bringing back broccoli and you tick off that you're as dumb as the moon, and I'm making this up because we don't really say that, but if you do tick off that you're not a very experienced seed saver, we want to know how, what you did to ensure this. And if you didn't, we take the seed and it goes on the free table. And we say on the free table may or may not be. You know, and, and so we, we move the seed along, uh, but, you know, and maybe you end up with a good hybrid out of that. Who knows? I mean, I'm, you know, there's both, both ways to go here. I'm, you know, I do hybridizing, like I'm talking about the broccoli. I'm doing that, but I'm not going to put that in the seed library until I'm certain of it. And right now we're helping uh, um, Craig Ruggles with his, uh, with his purple, uh, Winnetka purple artichoke, and we're going to grow those out. And again, we need to know how did you protect that and da-da-da-da-da. Okay, now there's some ambitious people probably listening to this podcast that may want to start a seed seed library. I want to say seed bank for some reason, but seed library where they live. Do you have any advice in, in how to do that? And can you talk a little bit about institutionally how this organization works? Sure. I think, first of all, uh, one of the wonders about the Seed Library of Los Angeles is that we have a large board. We call it a meeting together. And that's why I don't like to say I'm the founder of the Seed Library, because if it, if it hadn't been for these other people around here, we would not have gotten off the ground. We'd still be some idea I was playing with when I went to sleep at night. It is intensive in some respects, I mean, you have to have people around that are dedicated and you have to be dedicated to the idea of saving seeds. Now, there's a lot of good, solid reasons to save seeds. So that shouldn't be too hard to get excited about. You need a place to store the seeds and a place to meet. That's the physical representations of it. And it's really nice if you can have a garden associated with those that place because then you've got some of the breeding going on right there. Our position here at the Learning Garden uh, located on the grounds of Venice High School, has been very, very good to us and kind to us because we do have the space to grow out many different varieties with uh, under our uh, own eyes. 
and uh, and deal with them as a teaching tool and as an actual uh, site to, to save seeds from. Uh, another group I know in Northern California actually grows food for a church project, and so they have a large church growing grounds to utilize. And in fact, if uh, the one I'm thinking of actually grows out all their seeds and just makes it available in a seed library form. You need to have uh, the people around you that know something about growing things out from seed. And then you have to have the spaces, as I just described. The more people you have involved in the project, the better off it's going to be, unless you are you live alone, you have no pets, and no desire to go anywhere. <laughs> it occurs to me, actually, citing it at a school is brilliant because there's a botany lesson here, too. And you have a relationship with the school, too. Do you want to say something about how uh, you incorporate this into uh, an educational program? Every so often, I'm the the high school teacher. They have a high school gardening teacher, so I teach in addition to that. Anything I do is is just a, a special uh, section, and I have done that uh, with the students. We've gone out, we've collected seed, we've started those seeds, like uh, especially lettuce, because that's that you know you get the lettuce seeds and you can start lettuce around here at any time, and uh, so we've done that, and we've we've had a program here. Uh, for a number of years called um, Seed to Sale, where we grow the plants from seed and we take the resulting produce down once a month to the local farmer's market and we sell there. The money we make then pays for interns over the summer and helps us keep the garden going year-round. As it stands now, we have this huge, the brakes get slammed on when everybody leaves for summer vacation, you know. And, and then they come back and fall, and it's like we have to start over again, which kind of sucks. If we could keep it going throughout the entire summer, the whole thing, we'd be much better off. But yes, so the, the idea of saving seeds, and also it gives a chance to talk about things like genetically modified and the control of the seeds into a few companies. You know, that's another big problem. You know, the, the amount of diversity in our food supply is just shockingly small compared to where it should be. And, and so I think seed libraries in every community are absolutely an essential thing for the coming decades because we're going to need that diversity, that variety in our food supply. And if we don't have it, we're in deep doo-doo. That's a technical term. I hope your people understand that. How does that relate into climate change? I think that's part of what you're saying. Right? Uh, go ahead and address that if you like. I'm fond of not calling it climate change. Uh, I'm... I'm uh, or global climate change. I'm fond of calling it global weirdness because, um, you know, so many people you talk to, they say, well, I'm just going to move up to where it's cooler. And guess what? We don't know where that's going to be. It might be down. Um, I mean, there's no, there, it isn't that it's just going to change. It's going to become Im- unpredictable. And the worst thing in the world is that our farming uh, segment of the United States has done nothing to address the situation. If it doesn't rain for months at a time, or if it rains four months at a time, what is your alternate plan? And they don't have any of that. They've not even talked about it. So that's what we're talking like in the urban food production class. What, that's what we're talking about now is what are we going to do? You know, I'm a big proponent of, of, uh, of growing more oak trees. I mean, acorns may not be the thing you want to eat, but by God, if it's the only thing to eat, you'll be damned grateful for them. And also um, in uh, uh, mesquite, I think mesquite is is a marvelous plant. You can get down to five degrees below at night and 105 in the daytime and still produce a crop. 
I mean, what's not to like about that? And you can smoke? Uh, no, you can't smoke it. And other crops that are not in our, in our common repertoire, amaranth, quinoa, these have to be addressed. We have to pull these into our market strategies and have them a part of the garden whether or not we like them. Because anything to eat is better than nothing to eat. And I think that that's vital. And I think it, and we're going to have to have different strategies for keeping the lettuce alive when the sun does hit, for keeping the tomatoes uh, alive when the sun doesn't hit. I mean, what are you going to do? And this is, this is a huge perplexing problem. And nobody is doing any, nobody I know is doing any real research into this. And this is scary crap. <laughs> scary crap. You also, um, of course, wanting to breed out varieties that that are sort of weirdness resistant, I suppose, because it's, it's starting already. I mean, this, this was a very weird growing year, a very difficult growing year. Uh, we had a terrible uh, garden result and we complained about it on our blog and many people from this area said, oh yeah. So anything that thrived this year, like any tomato that was happy all year round or whatever, I would think that would be one to grab and keep, right? Well, yeah, actually, I, for for our listeners who don't live here in L.A., we had, what, four inches of rain, three inches of rain, followed by freak uh, summer rainstorms when it never rains here. And then uh, it's October, and we're still having 100-degree days. So that's just the background for people. So, yeah, did, I'm curious, too. Did, were there any uh, miracle plants that came out this year that you're, you're breeding out? No. <laughs> You know, and and just to add to your your level of weirdnesses, uh, you know, all of my uh, apple trees have apples on them and flowers. At the same time. At the same time. Now. Mm. Now. 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 And, you know, it's like, so when they go dormant, you're supposed to take scion wood. (laughs) And what am I going to do? You know, stand in there and shout at it till it goes dormant? You know, I just, you know, and, and this is, this has been progressively getting worse. I teach this class in propagation in uh, January through March. And we used to have the propagation part, the, the uh, slicing and splicing, grafting at the end. Now we're starting with it. And, and what am I going to do then is, you know, start the class in December. UCLA is going to have a kitten, you know, because they don't start until December. So, or till January. So, you know, there is evidence in, in our gardens that something is happening. And I don't see how you can call it anything but global climate change or global weirdness. Looking back over the, what is it, three years now since the, the founding of the Seed Library? Five years. Five years now. That's right, 2010. Um, anything that you learned? Anything you would do differently? That's a really good question. You know, I, I, I'd like, I, I think I would have been a little bit more hands-on than I was, a little bit more dictatorial. Even now, I think it's too early to say that was a good or a bad move. I'm proud of my involvement with the library, but I don't want, to think of any, I don't want anybody to think the library is David King or David King is the library. It just doesn't make sense. It, it isn't going to work that way. I have high hopes ahead for being the, re, the former chair uh, where I can do things, more things about getting away from just being here at the meetings and doing things out in the community. There are a lot of seeds out there we haven't got to yet. 
I would love to, I'm, I'm trying to teach myself, and, and many people are helping me, uh, Spanish, um, so that I can get out in that community and at least say a few words and don't look totally stupid. Uh, because I believe that, that many of the people that came north brought with them seeds, and I want to find those seeds, and I want to make sure that we get them stabilized, I want to make sure that they're a part of the inventory, and that we can have those for the future. I also think the same thing is true in the, in the, in the uh, Watts area, in the South Central area and I want to get into that area as well I want these areas to have seed library branches and I and and so if if I'm if I'm frustrated by any one thing it is the fact it's been so difficult to grow but I understand that it is a work intensive process and so we don't need we can't have just me but we've got to have many more people that are uh, semi-retired or are willing to live below the poverty line just so they can save the seeds. I mean, I, that's a big part of it. And I think uh, I have a lot of hope for the future because we have the seed library and because we're one of more than 55 libraries in the state of California. Oh, so you work with other other libraries. And, of course, it's a, you know, thinking about it, it's a thousand-year project, right? It's a long-term project. But you, you want to say something about those other libraries and how you work with them? Sure. I would say that I do, it is my most sincere hope that the Seed Library uh, outlives me by a long shot. I was talking to a younger lady today, and she's talking about climate change and how she's worried about for her and her children. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to miss most of that. <laughs> what good timing I had. How little did I know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, the, the other libraries mostly are... Um, are older. There's some libraries that are way older than us, and there's some. There are many libraries, of course, that are newer than us. Most of those libraries do follow the uh, like Richmond Grows model, which is where they're they're out through the community seeds. But there are different uh, community book libraries. But there are other libraries that have different things going on. Where the the one in Northern California, where it's the church operated uh, library, and I think that the the diversity of libraries and even the diversity of banks makes for a lot of uh, of redundancy and also opportunities and i think that that is the unstructuredness of it lends itself to more resilience and i think that's very important have you and the board thought about institutional longevity and how you ensure that yeah well i don't the board hasn't really addressed it so much yet, but I certainly have thought about it quite a bit. Uh, one of the things I'm hoping that we can do is export our database out to other people, that we can get a standardized database where 504 means it's Greg, Craig Rudel's uh, Winnetka Purple Artichoke. That's what I'm hoping for. And I'd, and I'd like to see institutional changes, like how my library can back up somebody else's library. or if, you Because know, we're in a vulnerable spot here. You know, a tidal wave could take us out. And then all our seeds are lost. Where do we go? Well, we can go right now over to um, the valley operation, and we can get some seeds from back back from them and start over again. But that's not enough. We need a backup uh, plan for us. We need a bank. We need a seed library of Los Angeles Bank that backstops us. And we're we're on the way. I think we're on the way. I think we've got a good, solid foundation, and I think we are a dynamic and versatile organization. I'm just looking for more. Before we move on to other things, I wanted to touch on resources. What do you give your members in terms of resources, recommendations for books, or are there classes or mentorships, or how do they learn how to do the right thing? 
Right. I don't think we we don't have a formal mentorship program, but we do certainly have an informal one where people just ask me questions uh, and other people that know things about stuff. Um, I had envisioned when we started the library that we would have a person who specialized in lettuce and a person who specialized in melons and a person who specialized. But as it stands right now, we have a person who specializes. And that's, you know, um, there are some great books out there. There are some books that are, I find, like Seed to Seed is probably the one that's most standard. And I'm not a fan of it. I'm much happier with um, Carol Depe's book, I, Breeding Vegetables. I think her, her book is, is so much more beautifully written. Um, you know, the first half is all about genetics, and she is a geneticist. So she's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's chewy. It's very chewy, but once you get past that halfway point, it is. She turns suddenly into this poetess, you know, this poet who's who's describing all the and and it's beautiful, a beautifully well written book, gorgeous with all the different senses involved. And right now, there's a ton of books coming out on the market, and I'm I'm looking at each one, but I still I think for a beginner, go back to Deppy or what is it? Organic seed, organic seed, organic. Organic Seed Something online, and they've got a little thin 30-page booklet, which is fabulous. If they just left out the four pages on freezing, it'd be fine for L.A. Freezing outdoors, not freezing. Yeah, right, right, right. In my place, there's no insulation. We freeze indoors, too. (laughs) So where do you store your seeds? Well, up in that, you know, right out here on the bedroom. (laughs) We'll find the link for the organic seed thing, and we'll put it in our show notes. uh, We're getting near the end of our time here. So, David, do you want to say something about upcoming classes or events at the Learning Garden or book? You're working on a book as well. Oh, yeah. Amazing, isn't it, that I'm working on a book? First of all, I just want to say that we're speaking from the Learning Garden, and the Learning Garden is the original home of the Seed Library of Los Angeles. The Learning Garden is about one acre located on the grounds of Venice High School, and we are the home for many different things like the West Side Produce Exchange, the uh, West Side Time Bank. We are also the, uh, the home of uh, the Seed Library and uh, several other adventures. So we are, a, what I see the, the, the um, Learning Garden as being is like an old-time neighborhood botanical garden. People can come in and go, what's this? What's eating my plants? And they can take classes here. The first Saturday of each month, I teach a class, which we colloquially call what to do and when to do it. It's from 10 to, to noon. We always say your question's answered. Even if we don't know the answer, we'll make something up. But it's also, it's, a, it's actually, I started it because it goes in conjunction with writing the book. Because I'm, I've been doing this stuff for a long time. And so I can assume that everybody knows when I say winnow, what a winnow is. And then you say winnow in a classroom and everybody goes blank. You go, oh, maybe I better address this. So it's been a learning experience for me. Also, I've been presented with problems I never knew anybody could have. You know, I mean, I guess, I guess if you leave a plant, you know, in a container, you know, it's supposed to be an annual plant and you keep watering it for three years, you know, and it turns into something that's kind of weird. You know, I never knew things, people did things like this. So it's been a learning experience for me and I've enjoyed it and I've enjoyed uh, the repartee, uh, repartee. So those things, uh, the learning garden also will be participating. Two things coming up. We'll have Thanksgiving in the garden about 11 o'clock we meet to eat at 12 we host the uh, clients and the staff of a program for torture victims so these people um, are trying to make a new life in 
the in the United States, we introduce them to the American custom of uh, Thanksgiving. And uh, if you uh, have problems being grateful at Thanksgiving, come on down and you'll get some. You'll get some real good input on how to be thank what to be thankful for. Mm-hmm. We've done this for I think over ten years, and then. Uh, the 21st of December, instead of Christmas, we do the winter solstice. And there's no gifts, there's no special costumes, there's no special lights, there's no special this or anything. You just show up, say goodbye to the old year, and welcome in the new year. I think this is really important because we're trying to adapt our city lives to this more agricultural heartbeat that communities used to live by. And so I try to observe these holidays, these dates, uh, and to, to when we have these dates, to take time to see what's in the garden, although it's changing, but, you know, to see things, what's in the garden, and try to, try to align my thought process to the, the thoughts and the processes of my, of my, greater, my great-grandfather and beyond that. The Learning Garden has been uh, in existence here since 2002, and high school students, uh, UCLA Extension students, uh, master gardeners, uh, students from the different Chinese uh, acupuncture schools, uh, all have come through here and learned about plants and what they mean to uh, our current life. So it is a neighborhood resource, and I wish every neighborhood had one of these. And I wish every neighborhood had one of these with a director that was paid. Right. Very good. Well, anything else? Yes, Kelly? Oh, yeah, your classes. Well, in my classes, I have my one class, which I teach the first Saturday of each month. And then in addition to that, in fall and spring, we teach a Victory Garden class, which is a curriculum from the University of California Master Gardener program, 12 hours long and about 28 hours worth of instruction. We talk very fast. And, uh, and then uh, we also have an intermediate class, which we're holding in December, I'm sorry, in January, February, where I'm teaching the plant propagation techniques. It's a little bit more advanced than Victory Garden. You know, where we get into, into dealing different things like that. So we do all those, in addition to which I do teach UCLA extension classes. Right now it's urban food production. Next term in the winter it will be uh, plant, produ- uh, plant propagation for gardeners. And then we do uh, one called Greener Gardens, which is more about being uh, sustainable in our gardening practices. And then in summertime, we're doing uh, container gardening, where we're throwing containers at each other. It's a very good class. It's very fun. Sounds a little dangerous. Um, (laughs) So if people want to, uh, is there a website? If people want to stalk you, how do they reach you? Yeah, I'm extremely stalkable. Um, I often say that my ex-wife and her lawyer have my phone number, so I don't really care who gets it. However, the the Learning Garden, thelearninggarden.org, uh, Seed Library of Los Angeles is slola, S-L-O-L-A dot org. And then there is the lagardenblog.com, which is where you find my musings and uh, and things like that. Very good. Well, thank you, David. Well, thank you. I really have enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed, enjoyed your questions, too. Thank you very much. That was David King. You can read his excellent blog at lagardenblog.com. The Seed Library of Los Angeles website is slola.org. The Learning Garden website is thelearninggarden.org. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple 
at gmail.com. Our website is rootsimple.com. You can find the podcast in the iTunes Store and on Stitcher. We are Roots Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please tell someone about it in an email or via social media. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.